When Sherry was 14, she was awakened in the night by a terrifying experience. She found herself dangling by one arm in the grip of a crustacean-like claw. She was still in her bedroom, but the window was now a portal with faint light pouring out. Framed in the window portal was a creature attached to the claw. It stood seven or eight feet tall and resembled a crayfish or lobster with massive oversized antenna. Upon waking, Sherry panicked, as I think we all would, and in her struggles, the alien creature dropped her. She fell to the floor, landing on her shoulder, and passed out. The next morning, Sherry found herself lying on the floor next to the window with a sore shoulder and a radial bruise around her forearm. Even though this took place in the 1970s, the event is seared permanently into her memory. Believe it or not, this is not the only strange occurrence to have happened to Sherry on this small farm in Greene County, Pennsylvania. Not only that, but it seems that the county itself may be the focus for paranormal activity within the region. I'm your host Jason, and you're listening to the Esoteric Book Club. Goblins! Tonight we will be talking about the books, yes, that's plural, Haunted Hills and Hollows, Volumes 1 and 2, by Rosemary Ellen Guiley and Kevin Paul. Before we get started, though, I need to point out that these books were given to me personally by the author Kevin Paul. We met at the West Virginia Cryptids and Strange Encounters Conference this past year, 2021 for those listening in the future, where he gave a presentation and had a booth set up for his books. After listening to his presentation, I went to his table and spoke to him briefly about a UFO sighting that I had that was similar to one that his wife had also had. After talking a bit, he asked about the Esoteric Book Club. I told him what it was, and he gave me a copy of his first book and let me in on a secret. In November, he said, the second book in this series is being released. He then got my mailing address and offered to send me a copy when it was printed. In return, I offered to review his works on the podcast. So, here we are. You heard in the introduction the story of Sherry, who had a strange alien encounter when she was a child. I teased that it wasn't the only encounter that she had had. In fact, she had multiple, although thankfully this was the only time that the crayfish showed up. It seems that Sherry's mother was also sensitive to the paranormal, and since Mama wasn't scared, Sherry very often wasn't either. She recounts that when she was growing up, she would often see shadow figures at the foot of her bed. It wasn't always the same type of shadow figure either. Some were black and some were gray, but all were semi-transparent and would either vanish or walk through the wall or window when they left. The gray figures seen by Sherry were described much like what we think of as gray aliens today. Short, emaciated, large heads, and oversized almond-shaped eyes. I find it interesting that they took on a shadowy appearance, making me think that these were not entirely physical creatures. 
This would mean that they fall more within the realm of interdimensional entities, as discussed in the book The Eighth Tower. Even though it's not expressly mentioned, I would also guess that these are the entities that would walk through the walls and windows upon their departure. The other shadow entities were tall, black, and often seemed to be wearing overcoats and broad-brimmed hats. These figures were a bit more frightening. While it was often difficult to see the details of these hat men, at times, Sherry was able to distinctly see round eyes. To a young child, these encounters would be more than a little frightening. But, as I mentioned, Sherry's mother was also sensitive. She reassured her daughter that the hat people were just relatives watching over her, and the aliens? They were just checking in to see how she was. It doesn't seem that Sherry's mother ever explained why the aliens were checking on her specifically, but it was a good enough explanation for a child, so Sherry wasn't terribly afraid. That said, there were some things that took place on her farm that would even give me the creeps. Sherry says that she was used to hearing Bigfoot howls at night, and occasionally her family would find their footprints on the property. But it seems that Sasquatch was not alone in those woods. Sometimes they would find tracks made by something bipedal, with feet larger than a human, but smaller than Bigfoot. Each toe on those tracks would also end with a pronounced claw mark. The authors attribute this to Dogman, though Sherry's family never saw the creature that made the tracks. There was also a hillside on the farm that had rough stacked stone structures that her family referred to as igloos. Sherry was often left to wander the woods, and she would often visit these structures. She recalls that at times there would be a fog surrounding them that she refers to as the veil. She never remembered what happened to her while she was within the veil, and her mother says that while she was there, she would be away for about an hour each time. Finally, Cherry has frequently witnessed aerial lights searching the hillsides around her home. At times, they would come from a triangular black object using spotlights, and at other times, they would be circular disks with multicolored lights around the rim. While this may sound too fantastical to have happened all in one location, Sherry was not the only person to have encounters in this region. Nor are they all relegated to the past. In 2017, Sherry says that the mysterious howls began to be heard again on the farm, and she believes that the Sasquatch has returned. A local maintenance worker on a nearby gas pipeline would agree. While performing routine maintenance, Gaswell contractor Philip witnessed a massive hairy creature striding across a clear-cut right-of-way. The creature was walking bipedally, but when it noticed Philip, it dropped to the ground, trying to hide in the low brush. It crawled to the wood line, and after a few moments, Philip saw a huge hairy hand wrap around the tree, and a shaggy head peer out from the other side. Now, the tables had turned and the creature was watching him. One of Sherry's neighbors named Jill recently began to see UFOs near her home as well. Much like Sherry's sightings, Jill recalls watching disc-shaped objects with red, blue, and green lights around the rim hover over the local hillsides, only to suddenly vanish without warning. 
Much like Sherry's encounters with the gray shadow figures, these UFO sightings make me think of John Keel's ultra-terrestrials from the Eighth Tower. What fascinates me the most are some of Jill's other encounters, because they have been witnessed throughout other parts of Greene County, but are not manifestations that I have ever heard of before. It's honestly difficult to describe these entities. She recalls them being black, scurrying things that came out at night. They would scramble from shadow to shadow, terrorizing both Jill and her dogs. Jill isn't the only person to encounter these creatures, though. John, a contract handyman, began to have encounters with these entities after doing some work on a home where he uncovered a Native American artifact. John was remodeling a porch, and after excavating some of the soil beneath, he uncovered a stone mortar and pestle. It was dated by local historians and is estimated to have come from the 18th century. This time period and location would make the Green County area contested ground between the colonists and local tribes. Between Lord Dunmore's War and the American Revolution, this region saw a lot of strife between the two cultures. While this was the only item found on the location, it seems that it was enough to cause these black blob creatures to manifest. John began to see them out of the corner of his eye at the worksite scrambling from shadow to shadow when he wasn't looking directly at them. As time progressed, he would see them dart across the driveway when he drove to and from the site, and sometimes from tree trunk to tree trunk in the surrounding woods. And then, they followed him home. He began to see these creatures in his dreams. Frightful nightmares that closely resembled waking life. Almost like he was witnessing events from outside his body. He would see things that looked like massive black moles with oversized claws climb into bed with him and begin clawing furiously at his back as he slept. In one particular nightmare, he watched a black form ooze under the bedroom door, slide up the foot of the bed, and flow over top of the sheets, where it proceeded to try to smother him. Eventually, he began to see them when he was awake, always at night, and always when he was in bed. His wife and kids said that they would hear him talking in his sleep and thrashing about, causing them to rush into the room, only to find him fighting with an invisible assailant. At least, invisible to them. To John, the creatures would perch on his chest and claw at him as he slept, only to explode into bits of shadow as someone burst into the room. In a rented home close to the one that John was working on, artifacts and human remains were uncovered while renovations to the grounds were being done. Once the discovery was made, the items were reburied and the planned construction was relocated away from the gravesite. Despite that, the black blobs were unleashed. The renters were at least spared the frightening encounters that John had suffered. Instead, the blobs would hide within the tree line, content simply to be seen. You know what helps me to be seen? Patreon. Yep, it's that time again. 
The Esoteric Book Club can be found on Patreon, where your donations help me pay for server costs, reading material, and fuels me with the necessities of life, such as coffee. I'm in the middle of restructuring the tiers and such, but rest assured, you can still help out the Esoteric Book Club for as little as $1 a month. Those who donate at the highest tier, like Samantha Shaver, will still get shoutouts on every show. I'll provide a link in the show notes. For now, let's get back to the show. These examples are just a few from the first book. While most are second-hand accounts from experiencers, the final chapters of each book are encounters that happen directly to the authors themselves. In book two, author Kevin Paul reflects on several events in response to a question that is commonly posed to him. What is the most frightening thing that you've ever encountered? While he aptly quips that the most frightening situations that he's ever been engaged in involve living, breathing human beings, he does elaborate on the weirdness that tends to follow him. The first thing he mentions in this chapter is how he learned about dowsing. Believe it or not, he discovered it during a lecture hosted by West Virginia University's geology department. Paul found that it was a skill in which he had a particular talent. For those who don't know, dowsing is a type of, well, I guess it's a type of divination, but it's used to find objects that are hidden. The primary use for dowsing in Appalachia is to locate sources of water, though it can be used for minerals such as coal or even things like oil and gas. It's done using either a forked branch of a fruit-bearing tree or using two thin metal rods, each bent at a 45-degree angle. In the case of the tree branch technique, the dowser holds the branch loosely in their hands and parallel to the surface of the ground. Then they try to focus on the target, clearing their minds of all other thoughts. Slowly, they walk around the area that they are searching. When they near their target, the branch will drop down, or, in some extreme cases, bend much like a fishing pole. I've seen a dowsing branch bend in half like this, and I have to say it is really impressive to witness in person. In the case of using metal rods, they are held in front of the dowser, gripped loosely, and held parallel. When the dowser nears their target, the rods will turn inwards and cross each other. It is also believed that experienced dowsers can get the rods to simultaneously point in the direction that they need to travel in order to reach their target. If you want to hear more about dowsing, check out the Life Mancy podcast, episode 42, entitled Dowsing with Dad. I'll post links to it in the show notes. Beyond a talent for dowsing, it seems that Kevin Paul also has a knack for premonitions. Granted, they don't always affect him directly, and he doesn't seem to be able to control them, but they are interesting nonetheless. He also has a phenomena that I also occasionally encounter, one that he simply calls the voice. Now, to him, he refers to it as the voice of God, but when I personally hear it, it is sometimes a female voice, so for me, it's difficult to assign an origin to it. Either way, the phenomena is the same. A disembodied voice relays a simple or single word message 
completely without context. As you can imagine, this can be both unnerving and, at times, aggravating. In Paul's case, he was hearing a single word repeated on multiple occurrences. Prepare. This began in earnest around 2018 and continued throughout 2019. When 2019 rolled around, he began to have symbolic dreams in conjunction with the voice. Specifically, he was being shown unprecedented weather events. While the messages made very little sense to him, he still began to prepare for such an event. Around Thanksgiving of 2019, he was relayed more urgent messages, indicating that his preparations needed to be completed eminently. I'm sure most of you can predict where this is going. With the events surrounding COVID, Paul used his extra downtime to sharpen his dowsing skills. He experimented and found out that he could use dowsing rods in basically the same way that pendulums are used, to answer yes or no questions. He was able to predict significant events such as business shutdowns in Pennsylvania, market shifts, and other impactful occurrences. About this same time, he began getting numerological synchronicities. He would see the number three everywhere. Sometimes it would appear in a factor of three, so nine, twelve, etc. Or he would have significant dreams or occurrences at 3 a.m. It's the dreams that really became bizarre, though. He began to have encounters with ultra-terrestrials. Initially, he called them alien, because in a literal sense, they are alien to us. But as time progressed, he began to understand that they weren't extraterrestrial, but instead existed in a neighboring dimension, specifically the spirit realm. They didn't seem to be the spirits of departed people, but instead had more of a fey quality. Of course, depending on the culture, these could be conflated with one another, so it's a finicky distinction here. These encounters had various female entities who eventually began to appear in real life. In one instance, Paul was introduced to a woman by a co-worker, and she appeared to have been one of the women in his previous dreams. Was this a visitation from the spirit world, astral projection, or one of his premonitions made manifest? It's really hard to say. After some time, one specific woman made herself known in the dream realm. She began to appear exclusively and more frequently. She spoke with authority and encrypted messages, always by directly projecting the words into Paul's mind. One night, he even awoke to find her standing beside his bed, where they had a brief conversation all without waking up the dogs who were sleeping nearby. Even the locations of his dreams took a drastic turn from suburban environments to rural, if not wilderness, areas. It seemed to have spurred him to do some extra exploration into nearby wildlands. In one such excursion, he was met with a striking figure that strode out of the brush with a massive dog accompanying her. Her clothing seemed out of place for such rough terrain, and when he looked again, she was gone. The author has his own theory as to who this individual was, 
and how she ties into the dream figure that was giving him the cryptic messages. But I'll leave that for you to discover on your own. As I mentioned earlier, there are a ton of stories within these books, many of which are just brief anecdotes from experiencers, but all serve to paint a picture of how overwhelmingly strange Greene County, Pennsylvania really is. The books aren't just limited to recording paranormal encounters either. They also include a large quantity of history and speculation as to what causes, or creates, all the strangeness in this region. Paul draws upon years of varied research, proposing theories on regional history, geological memory, ultra-terrestrials, extraterrestrials, spirit entities, hauntings, and even psychic imprints. While it may seem to be a movie trope that haunted locations are haunted because of unknown Indian burial grounds, in several instances this does in fact seem to be the case. Whether it involves historic tribes or ancient mound builder cairns, something beneath the soil of Greene County is being disturbed. Let's take a moment to talk about the books themselves. These are the first two books that Kevin Paul has authored, although I'm sure there will be more in the future. The first volume is co-authored with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, who was a friend of Paul's and participated in several cases and investigations. She played a major role in the investigation at the end of the first book and served as an advisor to Paul during his writing. While I believe that Kevin Paul did a majority of the writing for this book, I can tell that Guiley had a hand at least in the editing process. She has a unique way of formatting text for directness and simplicity, making them easy to read. It may not be noticeable to some, but having read several of her books, I have begun to recognize it. It is especially noticeable when compared to the second volume, which Paul authored himself after the passing of Guiley in 2019. Paul is a fantastic writer. His prose flows easily and is engaging, which may have caused me to stay awake far later at night than I should have on several occasions. It's almost like reading a mystery novel where the facts and scenarios are presented, but presented slowly and in pieces, so that it's not until the reveal that you really see how things come together. Not only that, but his historical research is excellent. He conveys the human connection to events much more clearly than most researchers do. It's not all about dates and locations, but more about how the events affected the individual and possibly their spirits. What criticisms do I have for these books? There are instances where I wish more detail were given. That said, I also understand from talking to Paul directly that sometimes this is all the information that he is given. Because of that, I can't really say that it's a fault of his, and really, I think it was ultimately a better decision to include a story with less detail in order to still relay the encounter. Otherwise, I found the books to be quite enjoyable, easy reads, with a ton of fantastic stories that make me a slight bit more nervous about crossing the state line. I never expected a book series about a single county to have so much information, but Kevin Paul has proven me wrong. 
For those who want to pick up copies of Haunted Hills and Hollows by Kevin Paul, I'll post a link to Visionary Living Publishers in the show notes. Trust me, there is a lot more than what I was able to cover on this show. The Esoteric Book Club can be found on Facebook, Instagram, Patreon, Podchaser, and at esotericbookclub.org. Intro and outro music is provided courtesy of Sarah Rudy and her band Hello June. You can find their work at bandcamp.com or at wearehellojune.com. Patreon supporters can stick around for more stories. For the rest of you, until next time, remember, stay weird. Alright weirdos, to begin, I want to go over some of the changes that I will be making to the Patreon. I feel like I may have taken on more than I can fulfill, especially after releasing this episode so late, so I need to restructure a little bit. There's going to be four tiers, starting with a $1 level and ending at the $20 level, so that part really isn't changing. The tiers themselves are going to get new titles as well. Titles that better reflect the theme of the Esoteric Book Club. But don't worry, I'll still call you all goblins. The tiers are Acolyte, Librarian, Archivist, and Chronicler. The idea is that each tier takes you through the different levels of our Esoteric Library. Now what do you get at each tier? Well, the Acolytes at the $1 tier will get my eternal gratitude for showing support for the show. When the show is finished early, they, and all Patreon supporters, will get early access to the episode. The Librarian is going to be at the $3 tier, and they will be the first tier to get full access to the Patreon extensions. This is a big change to the pricing structure. If you've been debating about increasing your pledge beyond the $1 level, this is the reason to do so. The Archivist tier will begin at the $8 level, and they will get everything I previously listed, plus a shout-out by name on the Esoteric News Brief episodes. Finally, we come to the Chronicler tier, that can be earned at the $20 level. As a Chronicler, you will be honored in every single episode, get access to every episode extension, and get the episodes early when I actually can get my shit together. No longer will this be part of the Patreon plug either. This will be a specific thank you at the beginning of each episode. Now, I also realize that there are some perks that are being eliminated, such as the esoteric footnotes. The problem with these mini-episodes is that I was not able to readily maintain the frequency of their release. Clearly, I have difficulty releasing regular episodes on time, as we saw with this episode. Nevertheless, if I get enough patrons, or enough patron upgrades, these episodes will return. What that specific number needs to be has yet to be determined. Anyway, I wanted to keep you all on the loop since I mentioned these changes earlier in the episode. Now, it's time for the fun stuff. 
I have two additional stories that I'm going to relay to you from the Haunted Hills and Hollows. Also, I want to take this time to point out that this is clearly a book set in Pennsylvania, because they say hollow. If this was in West Virginia, it would be Haunted Hills and Hollers. Anyway, moving on. The first story involves a young engaged couple. The bride was from Greene County, and the groom was from just across the state line in Monongalia County, West Virginia. The bride grew up in the area of the Warrior Trail, which is a historic path used by Native Americans to get from one region to another. While the primary trail was used for both trade and war, several branches were designated as trails, quote, where you go armed. That said, the bride was always warned by her grandfather to never go near the trail. According to him, that was a cursed ground. He even went as far to say as not even God would touch that place. Yeah, that sounds a bit extreme and maybe a little racist to boot. The groom in this scenario wanted to go camping for his bachelor party, so he and the groomsmen found a nice area in Greene County. They were West Virginia boys, so they knew nothing about the hauntings reported along the Warrior Trail. Hell, they didn't even know where the Warrior Trail was. Little did they know, they were camping near it. They had picked out a nice secluded clearing on a hilltop that would give them a nice view of the sky and a bit of privacy from any potential visitors. When the setting sun changed the color of the sky to an eerie blood red, that is when all the chaos began. Suddenly, a nearby bush began to glow with a creepy blue light. I have no idea what the significance of that is, but it's a noted detail, so I left it here within the story. Out of the shadows, ghostly white figures began to emerge. As you would expect, some of them were Native Americans, but the others were dressed in Civil War uniforms. This was clearly too much for the guys, and they all piled into their car, abandoning their camping gear, and left as quickly as possible. At the entrance to the clearing, there were two figures seated on opposite sides of the road. One soldier, and one Native American. They didn't seem to do anything besides serve as guardians of the place, though. As they made the sharp turn onto the main road, one of the passengers looked behind them, just in time to see one of the Native Americans hop and throw a spear at the car. Five days later, after telling their girlfriends and fiancé about the incident, they decided to go back to the site during daylight hours. Hopefully, they could recover some of their gear. When they got there, they found little more than muddy tire tracks where they rushed to escape their ordeal. Satisfied that there was nothing left for them, they all piled back into the car to leave, only to get a flat tire soon after they began driving down the road. When they stopped to change it, though, they were surprised to find what caused the flat. A flint stone arrowhead. The next story takes place on a farm near the town of Aleppo in the mid-1940s. There is a creature in this region, and near the Mason-Dixon line between West Virginia and Pennsylvania, known as the Night Howler. These Sasquatch-like creatures are, obviously, known for their nocturnal calls. In this story, it has another, more ominous name. John and his mother moved in with her father, 
John's grandfather, in the 1940s. At this time, single mothers were not held in high regard, and since John's grandfather was running the farm by himself, they decided that it would be best for them all to live together. John spent a great deal of time in the woods hunting squirrels to help supplement their meals, but he never really encountered anything out of the ordinary. The family was used to hearing howls in the night, attributing them to the night howlers, but otherwise, they really didn't think too much about them. In 1947, John was assisting his grandfather in the small blacksmith shop on the property when he noticed an ape-like figure standing on the woodline watching him. He alerted his grandfather, who slowly and calmly walked to the doorway and stood there smoking, never taking his eyes off the creature. Eventually, the thing turned and walked back into the woods. Naturally, John was excited about the event, and that night at dinner, he told his mother all about it. In turn, she was furious at her father for not telling them about this thing sooner. He called it the Dark Walker, but elaborated that the local native tribes referred to them as stone spirits. Not only were these spirits evil, but they were harbingers of death. While it may have sounded like superstition, the last time Grandfather saw the Dark Walker, it was right before his wife's passing. After that sighting, the nightly howls intensified, slowly getting closer and closer to the house. One night, as the family sat upon the front porch, Grandfather stopped rocking in his chair and locked his eyes on the woodline. He calmly told John to go inside and ordered his daughter to bring him his revolver. She brought it to him, and he loaded it, not once looking away from the trees. From inside the home, John and his mother heard furious howling, three gunshots, and silence. After a moment, John's grandfather yelled, Stay inside! A moment later, they heard the sound of the old pickup truck engine and gravel as he drove off to investigate. When he returned, John recalled that he could see something in the bed of the truck covered with a tarp. They went to bed that night without speaking of the incident. The next morning, over an awkwardly silent breakfast, Grandfather curtly stated, I killed the Dark Walker last night, and this is the last that we're going to talk about it. After that night, the howls were never heard again. Well, I don't know about the rest of you, but I don't plan to have any camping trips near Greene County anytime soon. I hope you enjoyed these extras tonight. As always, this is my way of saying thank you to my patrons, because without you, I couldn't make this show. So as always, remember, you're a special kind of weird. Good night. <laughs>